the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Every now and again, you find yourself at a junction in life, and you don't really know... Um, sorry, just a second again, the... Alrighty, let's try this again. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Every now and again, you find yourself at a junction in life. For people who believe in God and for people who feel that God is a, an active player in their lives, oftentimes they want, you know, advice from, from the people that I know well and that I hold near and dear, the people that I think are uh, you know are close to me or or that i trust but oftentimes i i want i want god's input in my life as well or maybe i only want god's input but in any event in any event oftentimes you know asking yourself what is the will of god job or find this or whatever it may be that you're asking god about often feels like this game of guess what's in my head you know um, I don't know if you've ever, if anybody asks, if you've ever been in that situation, usually it's in some kind of educational environment where somebody asks you a question and they know the answer and they want you to guess what's in their head. It's really not a lot of fun. It might be fun for the person who's, who's asking, but it's certainly not fun being on the receiving end where you're try just trying to guess what the other person is thinking of. Now, at the same time, as, as you may or may not have had these experiences, I've had them a multitude of times in my education, Scripture tells us, understand what the will of the Lord is. Specifically, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So it's in the imperative here. So that Scripture is telling us, the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us, or St. Paul penned you know, the words of the Holy Spirit, saying to us, understand what the will of the Lord is. So on one hand, there's this imperative, there's this must, you, I must know what the will of God is, otherwise I'm unwise. On the other hand, it's like, I feel like I'm just trying to guess what's in God's head. And it's frustrating. There must be a better way. And people oftentimes come and ask me for guidance or advice, and what is the will of God for my life in this Father John or in that Father John, right? And oftentimes as I get into the conversation with somebody, I, I realize that the will of God isn't like this inert, simple entity. It's not like helium, you know? Helium is like this, this inert kind of substance that just doesn't react with almost anything. You know what I mean? And doesn't react with almost any other atoms. And, you know, the will of God is not like that. In Jeremiah, speaking about the will of God, God says, for my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. They have no understanding. They are wise to evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Again, we see that like God has very little tolerance for us not knowing what he wants and being proficient at it and being good at it, not only knowing what, what he likes, but being but being good at it, and this isn't because God is petty. You're gonna understand now, God willing, as we speak, 
you're going to understand now the complexity of God's will and yet the simplicity of God's will and how and how why these statements are what they are and why it is imperative for us in our lives to have a very clear and simple understanding of what the will of God is so that we can then apply that to our lives. All of the material that's here is taken or based on or variants from just a tiny little excerpt of chapter 29 of book 2 of St. John of Damascus's book called On the Faith. So St. John of Damascus, guy in the 7th century, wrote a book called On the Faith. It was four volumes or four sections. And in the second book, chapter 29, you'll find this part that is called On Providence. The chapter is called On Providence, speaking about the providence of God. So where should we start if we're talking about this? I don't know. The rational place to start would probably be in the beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you're reading in the Old Testament, if you're reading in the New Testament, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It all starts with God. God is the creator. God fashions all of nature and the whole world. And whether you're a new earth believer or an old earth believer, I'm not here to discuss that today. This would apply in, in either sense. You know, whether God is the mastermind behind evolution or evolution never happened, it doesn't matter for the purposes of our discussion today. What matters is that we're on some kind of starting ground where God is the starting point of everything. God is the designer. He's the master architect. He's the one who fashions everything and he's the one who knows exactly how much oxygen we need to breathe and he's the one who knows exactly how long a person can live and this and that and and he made these things and he made them just so and in every different realm of science i've had the pleasure of studying even just a little bit it becomes so clear that everything is so incredibly precise and when you talk to the quantum physics people and whatever they constantly tell us that the circumstances for the for the birth of the universe were so incredibly precise that were they off by a thousandth of a decimal the world would not would not have been it would either have expanded to infinity or would have collapsed upon itself and imploded right and so god is the mastermind behind all this creation but he doesn't only create it and then say okay fend for yourself he's also its provider and if we believe in a good god and if we believe in a god who is not only not only good but perfect then we would believe naturally it would hold that his creation is perfect like he didn't kind of create it as an eight on 10. Like I could have made it perfect, but I got lazy or I ran out of time or I kind of got tired or I figured I just want to finish this one up so I can go on to the next one. None of that stuff applies to God. Like God is beyond time, effort, energy, all of that. None of that would apply to him. So we can only imagine if we are, St. John of Damascus is telling us that God's creation and his provision when he created the world were absolutely perfect and could not have been any better. And in Romans 9, 19, St. Paul says, for whatsoever the Lord pleased, he did in heaven and on earth, and no one has resisted his will. 
No one resists him. So there's no reason everything to be perfect, both in its creation and its, in its provision. We're getting to God's will. Now, that is the beginning. What's the end game? What's God's end game? Where is he going with this? Right? He makes everything and provides for everything in a perfect way. Where is he going? What's he aiming for in the distance? St. Paul's writing to St. Timothy and he says, whoever he, who, speaking about God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God wishes for everybody to come to a full knowledge of who he is and that in itself would lead us to salvation. So, very simply, St. John of Damascus explains to us that God's creation and God's provision equals God's goodwill. God created the world. It was perfect. He provided for it in a perfect way. The whole thing was this perfect ecosystem where everything adds up. 2 plus 2 equals 4. It doesn't equal 3.99. It doesn't equal 4.01. It just equals 4 right on the nose. It's perfect. It's like a mathematical closed system. Everything is perfect. Now, that would be great, but for Adam and Eve, right? Not Adam and Eve, but all of humanity. God says, I want to have a living, loving relationship with this, with this creation of mine. So how can as I say, then we would have to love God. We would be forced to love God. That wouldn't work. So God gives us free will by giving us a choice, not just a choice, but a choice with consequences. That's a different topic for another day. What would it be like to have choices without consequences? We can discuss that sometime. But love must be free. It must be without coercion. There must be an option to love this perfect God and his perfect will and his perfect providence or not to and to just do or to just do whatever we want to do and not be obliged to keep the train on the train tracks and do exactly as we're told. And that comes to us by a choice. So God's goodwill, when you combine humanity's free will, you get this thing called, God, 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 called God's permissive will, right? So God permits some things to happen. That doesn't mean that he wants them to happen. It means that out of a respect for our free will, out of the ab enormous, abundant respect that God has for us, he respects our free will and he allows not for the best and most perfect thing to happen, but for what we want, right? So he wants to take you to the keg and you want a Big Mac and he says, fine, dinner's dinner, Big Mac it is, right? But some things he wouldn't permit. I don't know, you say I want some poisonous plant, okay? So some things are outside of God's permissive will. What those are and what they aren't is a topic for another day. Now notice, we started talking today about God's will in regards to our choices. 
A whole other thing that St. John of Damascus talks about is God's will in the things which we don't have control over. He kind of separates it out as the things that God does that we have like no concept of. Well, we have no consciousness of those, so we can't even discuss them, but we can only imagine that God does what's best because we don't even know those things. I don't know, life on other planets, whatever, okay? Then there's the stuff that we're aware of. Now, of the stuff we're aware of, there's like two you could, big categories. The stuff we control and the stuff we don't control. Sometimes you get sick, bad things happen, etc. You don't have control over that. We're not talking about that. He talks about it, St. John of Damascus, and we could talk about it next week or some other time. But now I'm just talking about the stuff that you have control over. When you're coming to make a choice, where does God's will play into that? And from this, you can see that God has a good will, but he allows you and me to have a free will. And they don't have to be aligned. Because God allows, see, he could, you, you, could, you could try to walk off the beaten track and find yourself back on the track. You know, that's choice without consequence, right? Like, so, you know, God says, let's go straight. I say, let's go right. I start walking right and I find myself going straight. And I love, no, I'm going to go right. And I try to walk right and I find myself going straight. You go to a restaurant, you look at the menu, you order a cheeseburger and you get a Caesar salad. You say, forget this restaurant. You go somewhere else, you know, you order the cheeseburger, you still get a Caesar salad. You order the salad, right? And you still get the Caesar. You order a house salad, you still get the Caesar salad, right? You have, the consequences have to be attached to our choices. And that is all within a certain boundary, large boundary, but boundary nonetheless of God's permissive will. Let's take a very specific example to see how all this works. And if you're anything like me, you're looking at this slide and you're saying, oh my God, I could get myself into a whole lot of trouble. I could get myself into a whole lot of trouble. God, maybe sometimes you could just kind of cancel my free will and just keep keep your goodwill, and maybe sometimes I just shouldn't get that cheeseburger. Maybe sometimes they should just bring me that Caesar salad by accident and it would be better for all of us, right? But God doesn't work that way because he respects you and me and he respects our choices. Here's an example. So back in the day, the Israelites had, you know, left Egypt, walked around for 40 years in the desert, conquered the promised land. They enter the promised land. Then they go through the series of worshiping God and worshiping idols. And every time they worship idols, they get in trouble and a new judge rises up to rescue them. The last of the judges is this guy called Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. He's a great guy. So Samuel is judging the people every time people have a problem they come to the to, to samuel and he judges between them sorts out their issues and if they can't sort out the issue he goes to god and so on so they come to samuel and they say samuel give us a king to judge us you're not a king we want a king to judge us right that we also may be like all the other nations now samuel hears this and he's infuriated He's not like worried about unemployment. Now I'll tell you, the people were like a piece of work, okay? Like the first, the most thing he could want in the universe would to retire from having to judge between these, you know, these people who are always picking fights with each other, right? So it's not that he was, he was worried about losing his position as judge. See, Samuel understood. 
Samuel understood that the reason they didn't have a king was because God is their king. And now they're asking for an earth. And they say, we want a king that we might. Nations we want a king to judge us. We want a king in another place, they say, to go out before us in battle and come in with us in battle. They don't remember that when they went to the battles, a pillar of fire would go to them, consuming their enemies. They don't remember, they don't remember that, that they've been under siege and they woke up in the morning and found 5,000 dead. Well, that happened about 200 years after this, so that's why they wouldn't remember. But that's how God was. God was fighting their battles for them. And they say, we want a king. So Samuel is infuriated and he goes to God and he tells God, they say, right? And God says to Samuel, he says, Samuel, why are you so upset? They didn't reject you. They rejected me. Don't worry about it. We'll give them a king. But, but, please go and tell them. some of them to plow and reap his harvest and to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive grove servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants and you will cry out in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord did not will not hear you in that day. Be sure to tell them that Samuel. Be sure to tell them that he's going to tax the brains out of you. He's going to take your sons and make them fight his battles. He's going to take your daughters to work in his palace. He's going to take your sheep and your donkeys and your goats. That's you want a king. That's what kings do. Are you sure you want a king? They say we want a king. So, God gives him a king. He gives him Saul. Saul was actually a great guy when he started. He was a great guy when he started. He was kind of shy and a bit humble, right? And he actually did well for, for, for a number of years. But then came this incident. My most hated story in the Bible, because I can see myself in part of it, is in 1 Samuel 15, where God tells... Samuel to tell Saul, go and destroy the Amalekites. Just wipe them off the face of the earth. So Samuel goes and he, uh, Saul goes and he fights against them. And then he finds their sheep and their oxen. And some of them are really good. So it's not, what a shame to destroy all this stuff. So he says, let's keep that. Maybe we can offer it to the Lord or we can find something to do with it. Right? So Samuel comes and as Samuel is going, God speaks to Samuel and tells him, he tells him this, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Oof. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. A couple of verses before this, it says, Saul was unwilling to obey the word of the Lord. Sometimes we don't obey because we fall short. Sometimes we try and we don't quite make it. Sometimes a whole bunch of things. But if we look God square in the face and we tell him, I am unwilling to follow you after he has entrusted us 
that's a problem. But what I want to draw your attention to is not that. Remember, we're talking about the will of God, eh? This story is all about the will of God. So it wasn't really God's will for them to have a king. He was supposed to be their king, right? God was supposed to be their king. And God gave them a king as they asked. He respected their free will. And now that the whole thing has gone, you know, poorly, to be polite, he says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. So hold on a second here. Can God regret? Like, I make a decision and then I regret. Like, everybody gets buyer's remorse. You know, you buy something big, you know, you spend a lot of money and then you take a step back and you're like, oh, geez, should I have done that? I mean, maybe I could have gotten a better deal or do I really need this anyways or whatever, right? But can God regret? Sometimes we get disappointed. We discover things later that we didn't know before, but that doesn't apply to God. So how can God regret? He can. Maybe this is just an isolated verse. It was translated poorly or something. It's not supposed to be there. It got, somebody stuck it in by accident. Unfortunately, not. This is from Genesis 6, the bit about Noah, right before the story of Noah. So God creates the world. You know, Adam and Eve disobey. They get evicted from paradise. Generation after generation, they're living on earth. And they grow and they multiply. And they go bonkers. They just become so absolutely evil. And here is the description. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Three superlatives. Three superlatives to show that God, man had become, humanity had become so incredibly evil in that time. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Always, every single intention in the minds and hearts of every single person on the face of the earth except Noah was evil. I mean, if you were God, wouldn't you regret? Wouldn't you regret? Wouldn't you say, man, I don't know. I don't know if this was, I don't know if this was a good idea, right? And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Can God regret? Can God repent? We always think the word repentance applies to us. But the other word that this is often translated in, in many, many versions, it says, and God repented. What does that mean? How can God repent? Well, the word repent in Greek is this Greek word metanoia, means a change of mind. This is a screenshot from a Bible dictionary, right? Is a screenshot, is a change of mind as it appears in one who repents of a purpose he has formed or something he has done. God has had a change of mind. Well, this is even more confusing. How can God change his mind? Like he's supposed to know everything. He's outside of time. He doesn't get surprised. He doesn't get disappointed. How is it that God can change his mind? Okay, this is where it all comes together, right? So we have God's goodwill. 
God's goodwill is how everything would be if Adam and Eve never ate from the tree, if nothing bad ever happened because God had set everything up in order, he had set it up perfectly, and everything was supposed to happen in the way it was supposed to happen. He, he set it up properly, he provided for it properly, everything was just perfect and proper as it was. No sickness, no death, no nothing, right? Humanity decides to exert its free will. When we exert our free will, that lands us into God's permissive will, right? And then when we're in God's permissive will, we're no longer in God's goodwill. This is a will which is different from this will, necessarily, it is different, but it has been permitted by God. He has allowed it to happen, right? All stuff we discussed previously. If the person or God himself repents, if he has a change of mind, a change of will, he can go back from his permissive will to his good will. And that's what repentance is. A return from our free will. Our repentance is a return to Eden. Our repentance is a looking at the tree in the garden and saying, didn't work out so well when we ate from it. Maybe we shouldn't do that again. There's been a change of mind. There's been a change of mind. Well, how does this all work out for Saul? So God has had a change of mind Saul is not going to be a king who's going to lead my people the way I would lead them. Now, it's not God didn't change his mind because he didn't know that. At, at a certain point, God's permissive will ended. And he said, this can go on no longer. We can't, like we've given this king a chance. He set up a kingdom. He's fought a couple of wars and, and, and he did that properly. But then he started to go off the track. We've given him x number of chances right and this this i can't have him lead my people if he's not going to lead my people the way i would lead them so i need somebody to lead my people the way i would lead them so what does he say to saul but now your kingdom shall not continue the lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart and Samuel goes and secretly anoints David. In the book of Acts, when this story is being described, right, he says, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So God gave them Saul because they wanted Saul. It was the fulfillment of their free will. See, God had to respect their free will, so he had to give them Saul. God knew what was going to happen. In fact, in fact, he allows all of this so that not only that generation, but all generations after can learn that the way God has set things up is just perfect as it is. I am your king. Other nations have a king. That's okay. Let them have their king. But I am your king. And it's just perfect. It's been set up just so, right? But now he can't just remove Saul because now they, they have a kingdom that has to run. So he says, let me then put a king who has my heart. He somehow 
has a change of mind, a, a return, a return from the free will, permissive will, a return back to his good will. And this is what happens every time you and I repent. This is what happens every time you and I have a change of mind, a change of heart. We try something which we know is against the will of God. We know is not according to his good will. Scripture tells us clearly, God says clearly, Jesus says clearly in his teachings, the Holy Spirit guides us clearly that this is not a good idea, but I do it anyways. And God allows my free will because he respects you, he loves you way too much not to. And that lands us in this permissive will. Sometimes goes okay, sometimes doesn't. But at a certain point, I have this eureka where I realize like, oh no, this is not okay. I have to return. And St. Paul tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads to our repentance. And that's how we return. That's how we return from this good, from this permissive will to God's good will. I've got other good news for you, right? Is that as a church, as a ecclesia, an assembly of saints, there's those of us who are fighting the battle here and those of us who have fought the battle and won by the grace of God and are waiting for us in paradise. And they, they have plowed a, a super highway for us on this road. And you're not in this alone. And every single person, you know, every, it's, like, it's like we're all standing in a circle. I'll share an analogy with you. I think it's St. John Saba who says this. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have this in my slides. St. John Saba says this. He says, the relationship between the people of God and God himself is almost like a circle drawn with a compass where the pinpoint in the middle is God and the circle around it is the church or is the assembly of believers right and the radius is the distance between the center and any point on the circle as that distance gets shorter between any believer and god as any single person draws closer to god if the radius gets smaller then the whole circle gets smaller what happens if the whole circle gets smaller the circumference gets smaller if the circumference gets smaller every dot that's sitting on, on that circumference gets closer to the one beside it. So as I draw closer to my neighbor, I draw closer to God. As I draw closer to God, I draw closer to my neighbor. That's good news, and I'll tell you why. Because every single person who is repenting, every single person who has repented, and all the assembly of saints that came before us, that's all credit to you. That's all people little dots on the circle drawing near to God. And if you are excited to draw near to God, that's great. Then you're contributing to that inward positive motion. If you're kind of lazy or resisting or not sure or whatever, then all of these other people are drawing you in as well. And so this is, this is kind of how, this is kind of a very simple schematic to kind of describe these different things. So when someone comes and asks me, what's God's will for my life? I mean, which will? God's good will 
I mean, I don't know. That's how God created the universe. That's if no one had ever chosen anything outside of God's will ever, that our free will had always been perfectly aligned with his, his good will. Not sure that I would have any idea what that looks like other than to look to paradise. And that's why we always look to paradise as the restored state. What did Adam and Eve look like before the fall, right? If we're going to talk about what's God's permissive, what would God permit in your life, well, he would permit a whole lot of things, right? So if I can be very frank with you, the money isn't, the money isn't in trying to guess what this is or trying to guess what this is. The money is in doing what you know and are able to do very easily, which is this. I will make decisions that will not be correct. I guarantee it. But I also guarantee that God's goodness will draw me back to repentance and draw me step by step closer back to his goodwill. I want to share one last thing with you. When I was reading about God's provision, the word for God's provision or provider in Hebrew is gyra. Is gyra. This comes up, the first time this comes up is with Abraham and Isaac. God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham says, great, I'm 75 years old, but sure. And my wife is 60, but I believe you. 25 years go by, 24 years go by, nothing happens. And God finally gives him a son, Isaac, right? 13 years later, now, Abraham's like 113, right? And Isaac is 13 years old. God tells him, I want you to take your son, your beloved son, the son of promise that you've waited for for so long, up onto this mountain, Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt sacrifice. Most of us would be like, what? <laughs> Abraham says, sure. And he saddles up the donkeys and he gets everything ready and he takes, he takes Isaac up onto the mountain and he ties Isaac up and he puts him on the altar and he pulls the knife out and as he does, an angel stops him and tells him, tells him I, I have seen, I have tested you and I have seen your faithfulness. Look, there is a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. Offer that instead. I mean, to his great pleasure, Abraham unties Isaac, gets the ram, ties it up, and offers it as a burnt offering on, on that altar. And the reasons and why and all of that that God did that is a, is a topic for another day. You can ask me after if you want. But the point is, Abraham was going up on that mountain not knowing how this was all going to play out. He came down knowing that God provided a sacrifice to make everything a-okay and so he named that mountain jehovah jireh god will provide now this abraham and isaac thing is a is a phenomenal story but if it were a story it would have died 2500 years ago 4500 years ago 4,000 4, years ago. 
But it's not. It's not just a story. It's not just a story. It's a foreshadow. It's a foreshadow of a God who said to make everything right, to make everything right, I need to send my only begotten son into this world. And he has to come into this world and I will provide him. I will provide him into this world. And see, when, before Adam and Eve fell, the provision of the return to Eden was already in place. And the prophecies about the coming of Christ and his sacrifice and his death on the cross and his raising up us up in his resurrection and bringing us up into his ascension in heaven are all prophecies in the Old Testament. Before Adam and Eve fell, God had planned it out already. He, there's nothing that's in his permissive will that he is unable to provide for and to restore. So don't be afraid in your choices. Don't be afraid. I seek with all my heart to do God's will. I'm not afraid if I make wrong choices. I will make some choices that will be outside of God's goodwill and will fall somewhere in God's permissive will. And as God provided a ram for Abraham and Isaac and provided the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, as a, as a loving restoration for you and me, he will also provide you and me a repentance to return back to his goodwill once more. Glory be to God forever and ever, men. Thank you.